Welcome to a rebroadcast of Miranda Warnings. In April 2024, the New York State Court of Appeals overturned the criminal conviction of Harvey Weinstein in a four to three ruling. In September of 2020, following Weinstein's conviction, the members of his defense team appeared on Miranda Warnings to discuss the case and their plans for appeal. At that time, Miranda Warnings also spoke with attorneys representing plaintiffs in a civil lawsuit against Weinstein. Please listen again to the legal strategy regarding the case against Harvey Weinstein. You have the right to remain listening. Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with the Honorable Barry Cannons and Artha Idela, who are partners with at Idela, Bertuna, and Cammons in New York City. They were part of the defense team that represented Harvey Weinstein. And they're going to give us some insights into what it was like to represent one of the most notorious and despised criminal defendants in recent history. Uh, welcome, Judge Cammons, and welcome, Arthur. Thank you, David, for having us. Yes, thank you, sir. It's an honor and a pleasure. It's great to have you. And I'm just going to give a little bit of background for, for each of you. Judge Cammons is a retired New York State Supreme Court judge, former assistant district attorney from Brooklyn, past president of the New York City Bar, an adjunct professor of criminal law at Brooklyn Law School. And Arthur Idella is a former senior senior. Uh, assistant district attorney from Brooklyn, a legal analyst at Fox News, and in private practice has served as counsel to Fox CEO Roger Ailes, New York Giants Hall of Famer Lawrence Taylor, and real estate developer Abe Hirschfeld. He also served as press president of the Brooklyn Bar Association. So, you know, both of you are well-respected criminal defense counsel. Obviously, most of or most of your criminal clients are either criminals or accused criminals. But Harvey Weinstein, Vanity Fair wrote an article that said, who would represent Harvey Weinstein? And the answer is you two. So tell us about how that happened. Well, um, I will tell you that my partner here, Judge Cammons, was not exactly uh, jumping out of his shoes to represent Harvey Weinstein. Um, I was connected to Mr. Weinstein through a friend, um, Jose Baez, who was representing Harvey at the time and said he needed local counsel. And I had known Jose from actually working on television and, and through our mutual friend, Geraldo Rivera. And uh, so Jose and I met and he said, look, I, I, you know, I just need someone who knows, you know, the, the, the courthouse and the ins and outs of uh, New York City practice. So I want to bring you in. And uh, then I had to go meet um, Mr. Weinstein in his little office in Midtown Manhattan. And David, the best way I could describe that meeting is two dogs walking up to each other in the park and sniffing each other out and trying to figure out, you know, what they're all about. But um, obviously the meeting went pretty well. Uh, and then I went back to the office and told uh, Judge Cammons and, and the rest of the team that we were being seriously considered to represent Harvey. And um, I would like to say that T Judge Cammons uh, gave it some pause. Is that 
Would, would that be accurate, Judge Cammons? I, I would say pause is a good word. I, I think my reluctance uh, had to do in part because I anticipated what I knew would happen, that, that the media frenzy would be of such magnitude that it would be very difficult to try this case uh, in New York City. And as you know, we tried to move it. Uh, we made a motion for change of venue, but that was denied. But I just anticipated the, the frenzy and, and the, uh, the, the magnitude of coverage was so overwhelming or would be so overwhelming. It would be very difficult. And that's why it was good to have this team effort because no one lawyer could possibly handle this uh, trial. So we had, as Arthur will explain, we had this team that was put together, including two attorneys from from Chicago. Yeah, I want to talk about the, the various uh, roles that each of you played, but before we get to that, I want to just talk a little, this is a, you know, a, a legal podcast, I want to talk about the impact on your practice. I mean, when you uh, were going to represent Harvey uh, Weinstein, did, did you have clients leave and say, look, we love you guys, but we can't be associated with lawyers that represent Harvey Weinstein? Did you lose clients because of that? Um, I know of one very high profile client um, that we were about to represent. We actually had done some preliminary things for him, um, but we hadn't engaged fully with him. And there was a question mark whether or not that was going to happen, whether he was going to engage our services fully. And he's a, another name that's in the news that is a household name. Um, and I knew, you know, it was one or the other. I knew, you know, if we signed up with Harvey, this gentleman was not going to retain us. Uh, but it was more than that. It was more about the reputation of the firm. And David, as you started off, it, you know, I mean, Harvey was really the most vilified defendant in the modern era. Um, and the person who I really turned to, because, to, you know, when you run a firm the way we do, and there's a lot of mouths to feed and a lot of people who are paying their mortgage based on the income that comes in from the law firm, you feel a tremendous responsibility to make sure you don't do anything that's going to put those people's lives and their livelihoods in jeopardy. So I did struggle with it a little bit. Um, and the person who I really went to for the final vote was my father, who was a criminal defense attorney for 55 years and handled some some really tough, uh, tough hombres, so to speak. Uh, and I said, Dad, you know, what, you know, what do you think? I mean, is this going to be a problem? And, and I'm a little concerned that he, without even you know, batting an eye, he just said to me, let me ask you one question. Are you going to get paid? I said, yes, I'm going to get paid. <laughs> he said, well, well, what kind of, you know, what kind of law do you think you practice? I mean, we practice in general uh, a type of law where we represent people who are charged with horrible things you know, and rapes and murders and, and, um, and the robberies and things that really alter people's lives. He said, you know, you're there to protect the constitution. You're there to protect, uh, this, our system of justice. And as long as, uh, you know, you're going to always do everything the way you always do, which is ethically, um, of course you should represent him. And so the, for me, that was, you know, once I got the stamp of approval from, uh, from dad, it was, uh, it was, you know, all hands on deck. And what happened was, in a nutshell, Mr. Baez and Mr. Weinstein didn't really see eye to eye uh, on several issues. And Mr. Baez wound up, you know, departing the case. And I asked Jose, I said, look, you know, you brought me in. If you want me to leave with you, um, I will. And he was a, a real sweetheart about it. He said, absolutely not. He's like, you know, if you can 
use this to, you know, help Mr. Weinstein and help yourself, then you should definitely uh, stay on board. And um, Mr. Weinstein was very focused on having a female, a strong female participant on the team. And he found Donna Rotuno. And uh, we met with her, Judge Cammons and I, several times. And we found her to be a, besides a wonderful person, a very... um, accomplished attorney, talented attorney. And she came on board and then she brought her associate, um, Damon Sharonis with us, who's a young man who's incredibly gifted as a lawyer. And that was basically the team was Donna and Damon, myself, Judge Cammons, and another woman from our law firm, um, Diana Fabi Sampson, who as long as well as Judge Cammons has an enormous amount of appellate experience and having those appellate lawyers sitting at a table while you're trying a case is an experience I've never had before. And boy, is it a luxury. So you had a defense team and each of you had different roles. So why don't, why don't you share with me at least for the two of you, what your roles were? Judge Cammons, what was your role on this defense team? Well, as the author mentioned, uh, it's always good to have somebody with appellate practice uh, on the team because there were issues that came up. Uh, I won't go into any great specifics because, as you know, it's uh, the matters on appeal right now. But but things would come up certainly during the voir dire. Uh, a, a very significant issue came up, and um, research had to be done immediately, um, and uh, we were able to. Uh, complete some motions, uh, uh, you know, as we, in, in real time, as we're going along uh, with regard to a certain juror. So uh, my role really was sort of a, a, to, to uh, ferret out some legal issues as we were going forward and uh, raise them with the judge. Um, and um, Diana, Diana Sampson also was a part of that effort to try to uh, work on some legal issues. Of course, Arthur and the Chicago attorneys were there more as advocates in the courtroom, you know, doing the cross-examination, the summations, the opening statements. So I think that's how it broke down. So you were, you mentioned voir dire. What kind of, uh, what was your thought process going into voir dire? What kind of, what were you looking for in jurors? Judge, you can answer that question. No, I think Arthur, Arthur was there picking the jurors, so maybe, Arthur, you ought to... You ought to uh... I mean, look, it was really hard, David. It, it wasn't... There. Nobody fell into an exact um, demographic, you know, that we wanted. It was really more of an individual... Um, an individual decision, literally juror by juror. Um, we didn't have, like, okay, this is exactly the person we want. Um... And that's where, and the, you know, the judge talks about issues of voir dire. I mean, that's where the judge really handcuffed us. Um, I don't want to exaggerate, but I believe there were 20 potential jurors he would put in the box. And he gave us 15 minutes to speak to them. So if my math is correct, that's somewhere around 40 seconds per juror to speak to speak with that, uh, you know, that is, that is not an enormous amount of time. Now there was, it takes Arthur 15 minutes to say good morning. Sometimes. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, there, there was a, to be fair, there was a questionnaire. So, you know, we kind of knew their background. We knew where, you know, where they grew up and whether they were married and how many kids they had, but we couldn't really address any of the issues of the day, quote unquote, because there was, there wasn't enough time. So kind of what we needed to do was after, reading their questionnaires and then hearing the prosecutors, you know, their 15 minutes, 
like I, I, you know, the round that I did, like I, I narrowed it down. I'm like, all right, these 10 people are viable. Those other 10 people for whatever reason are not viable. So let me just take, you know, 40 seconds and I'll double it. And at least I'll have like, uh, you know, two minutes with 10 people. Um, but it was very hard. And, I, and that was a decision that the judge made, which was in my opinion, very unreasonable. Um, there was no reason for to give both sides on the case of this magnitude when an individual who's never been charged with a crime in his life, who's facing life in prison, why he uh, gave 15 minutes. It's just, and just so those of you who don't practice in New York who are listening, that's, that's not typical um, 15 minutes in, in this type of a case with 20 jurors in the box. Um, you know, maybe if there's 12 jurors in the box, 15 minutes, it's a little bit more manageable, but typically, at least on a homicide, you know, a judge is going to give you double that amount of time, like a half an hour for the first round. So it was, and that, look, in my opinion, David, that's the most important part of the case is jury selection. As my grandmother told me, if you don't start with good tomatoes to make the Sunday sauce, it doesn't matter what you put in there. It's never going to be a good Sunday sauce. It's the same thing. If you start off with jurors who are, just bent against you from the beginning. It doesn't matter how good your evidence are is if in their mind, they're like, well, I'm never saying not guilty. So that was an area that we will definitely be focusing very uh, strongly on appeal. And, you know, the, there's an issue that's all over the newspaper that one of the jurors wrote a book having to do with very similar subject matters. And that's going to be our, our lead issue on the appeal is that there was a person on the jury who really should not have been on the jury. And they, they wrote the book. They wrote the book before they were on the jury. They they were writing the book. The, the book was being written, and there were galleys being written uh, while this juror was uh, being questioned. But I just want to give some context. You know, uh, picking a jury is difficult enough, but when you have jurors walking into a courtroom where they're walking past uh, a ton of reporters, and in addition to reporters. Uh, protesters. We, there were groups of people protesting uh, for various causes standing outside 100th Center Street. And this is the group, these are the groups that the jurors were walking by. And as the jurors were sitting in the courtroom, the windows were open at 100th Center Street. The ventilation was terrible. And the windows were open and they were hearing chants, uh, you know, calling uh, Mr. Weinstein certain names. So that was the sort of the atmosphere in which uh, Arthur had and the other lawyers had to try to pick fair and impartial jurors, which you can imagine was made much more difficult. You know, and David, just to, David, if I'm, I'm sorry, but yeah, just, to ahead, some, just to give you some, so you know, like we're not being crybabies. When I tried the Lawrence Taylor case in, in federal court, that judge, because of who Lawrence Taylor was and the publicity that case got, which was a fraction of the publicity this case got, she did individual voir dire. We basically spoke to one juror at a time um, about you know what they knew about the case and how what they had read and what they had heard was going to affect them in the case. And you know that's exactly what should have been done here. I mean, so two books had been written about this this case by you know uh, authors before it, before it came out. There was a there were two at least two documentaries. The day that we're picking the jury, David, he gets charged in Los Angeles with new crimes. It's on the cover of every newspaper in the jury room before these jurors are walking in to, to claim that they're going to be fair and impartial. And yet the judge gave us 15 minutes for 20 jurors. It's just, it was, it was not the, the, the nicest way you could say it. It, was, it just was not fair. Now, uh, at the beginning of the trial, you got your, your defense team actually made a motion 
to have the the judge who tried the case step down, arguing that uh, in some of the preliminary uh, hearings that he showed bias against your client, um, something involving, I think, uh, your, your client's use of a, a cell phone. Um, what was the strategy in, in making that motion, which was ultimately uh, unsuccessful? Well, before the trial started in the trial started in January and December, the judge called us in. I actually was the one from there from our team, and he said, "I don't want to see Mr. Weinstein's cell phone during at all during the course of the trial." And that message was conveyed. And apparently, because I was I wasn't late for the court appearance, but I, I was late to to miss this part. Apparently, Mr. Weinstein got to court early that day, and the, the judge was not on the bench. The jury wasn't there. The, the courtroom had not been assembled. And apparently during that period of time, he took out his phone. Um, it may have been he took it out just to shut off all of the, you know, to shut it down. Well, right. somebody uh, ran inside and told the judge, Mr. Weinstein's got his phone out. <clears throat> so, David, I walk into the court. I literally have my hat and coat on. Took my hat off walking into the courtroom. The judge takes the bench. He barely got us to... Um, put on notice of appearance on the record. And he says, Mr. Idala, tell me why I shouldn't remand your client right now for defying the court's order. I just look up. I have no idea what he's talking about. And, and I told him that. And then he asked another person on the team and they didn't know what he was talking about. And then he's like, well, it's come to my attention. He had his phone out and the judge just lambasted all of us. And, and he told Mr. Weinstein something along the lines of, is this how you want to start spending the rest of your life in jail? Now, this is before the case has even started, and the judge is making comments about sentencing and right. and, and even what the sentence is going to be, right? You're going to start spending the rest of your life in jail. Um, and the judge at that point had just been flexing his muscles to such a degree that we thought was unfair. From a strategy point of view, we, we thought, number one, we needed to protect the record to let the appellate division to know how egregious this whole thing was. And sure enough, it was reported in all the papers. That's another reason why. So all the jurors are reading that the judge is telling him, you're going to spend the rest of your life in jail. And number two, from a strategic point of view, I think we wanted to, you know, fire a shot over the bow and say, look, judge, you know, you, you can beat us up all you want, but we're just not going to take it lying down. You may win every battle, but we're going to go down swinging. Yeah, as you, can as you can imagine, it wasn't the best way to start a case. Uh, but I think, as 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 Arthur said, and as you said, David, uh, the judge was flexing his muscles, and I think it was the defense wanted to show that it was flexing its muscles too. Even though we we knew that that motion wouldn't be granted, but it, sometimes it's just good to send a signal to the judge that you know we're watching carefully and we'll make any appropriate motions we have to to uh, as we go forward in this trial. Now, I want to talk a little bit about some of the strategies that you had in the case uh, to the extent that you can talk about them. This was obviously, uh, you know, the facts of the case are, are certainly well known. Um, this was an interesting case in that there was no physical or forensic evidence uh, that were involved. Uh, it turned the trial over really into a battle of credibility. And the prosecutors in the case were portrayed Mr. Weinstein as a predator who kept his victims close after attacking them in an effort to control them, uh, using his power over their careers uh, to attempt to silence them. What was the defense strategy uh, in, in going into uh, this trial? 
Well, it it was never to say it it was never to say, oh, this never happened or these acts never took place. It was always to say that they were consensual. And what we had to back that up is none of these were one time encounters. So he got convicted um, basically on two different women. Both of those women he had long standing relationship with with after the assaults. So, you know, in Mr. Weinstein's defense was, look at all of the emails and the text messages that the complaining witnesses are sending to Mr. Weinstein almost immediately after the the encounter that they're describing as being unwanted and unsolicited. Uh, one woman going as far as, you know, I can't wait for you to meet my mother. Um, she's coming into town. I want us all to get together. Writing another time, I heard you were in my neighborhood and you didn't come and find me. Why didn't you? You know I wanted to see you. This is all, these are all texts and emails that were sent to him after the date that they say they were assaulted by him. So there was that type of evidence in his favor showing that, you know, in a very, you know, schoolyard term, it seemed like there were no hard feelings between them because, and I'm not talking, David, that, that you know, these relationships went on for like a week. I'm talking about they went on for years. Um, and, you know, you talked about it was a issue of credibility. Well, the judge also handcuffed us and Mr. Weinstein regarding credibility because he ruled in pretrial motions that if Mr. Weinstein testified, the prosecutors could ask him about, I don't know, Barry, I lost count, 22, 25 prior bad acts. I think it was and 25. In the, 25. In the world that we live in, David, a prior bad act is usually at the very least an arrest or a conviction. They're talking about, they were going to let him get into like every argument he had with his secretary, every argument he had with his first assistant, that he punched his own brother in the nose at a, over a fight. By the time they went through all 25 things, even though they were relatively, they were all petty. None of them were had, had to do with an arrest or a criminal act. Um, you know, nobody would have believed anything that came out of this man's mouth. And it was just so beyond the pale. I mean, Sandoval rulings usually can talk about two, three things. 25 just basically said, okay, Mr. Weinstein, now you can't testify. So the judge made the decision for the defendant that you can't, I'm not allowing you to testify because I'm going to make you sound like a lying devil before you say a word to this jury. Yeah, I want to talk about so, that decision about having the defendant testify. But before we get to that, I do want to go a little deeper into, you know, the strategy that you had here. You, you know, you talked about the fact that some of these or, or, or the cases that were involved were uh, continued relationships. Um, but as you know, better than I, uh, certainly, you know, legally uh, and factually, a continued contact doesn't nullify a rape accusation. In fact, uh, long-term relationships uh, can include sexual abuse, and unfortunately, sometimes they do. So the fact that there was continued conduct here legally uh, wouldn't wouldn't necessarily uh, change the you know the ultimate result, which in fact in this case it didn't. Uh, so there would have to be more than that. And it was well. It actually, David, if I may correct you, it actually did because don't forget. I mean. No one is declaring this as a victory for Mr. Weinstein, but he was charged with six, six crimes. He was convicted of two. They found him yep. not guilty. They found him not guilty of four. 
Um, and a lot of that has to do with what I said, which was the people's, you know, the, the complaining witnesses, uh, actions thereafter, what they did and what they, what they failed to do, you know, like how long they waited to report the crime. And as I said, there were all these emails from them about, you know, their feelings towards Mr. Weinstein. I mean, one of the women, um, she basically had like a semi-nervous breakdown during cross-examination. And I don't use that term lightly. The prosecutor had to, she had to leave the stand. The prosecutor overnight flew her mother in from California. She testified the next day, squeezing a therapy ball that was visible to all of us. And that was all due to her being cross-examined on all of her emails and all of her texts. So, you know, how could it be true that you testified on direct examination that you hated him and you despised him from the day that this alleged, you know, to the day that this, this attack, as you describe it, took place? How could, how could it be true that you despised him and you couldn't stand him when you wrote him this email and this text and this email and this text? And isn't it true you saw him on this day in this hotel and you had consensual relations with him? It isn't true you saw him on that day and you had consensual relations with him. And they did, even on that person, they found him not guilty of one of the charges and guilty of the lowest charge. That's the one he's only doing, uh, I think it's two, or I think it's three years on. So, you know, to some degree, and again, David, I'm not, I'm not living in a dream here. No one is saying Mr. Weinstein getting sentenced to 23 years is a victory, but um, our strategy on four of the six counts worked. Uh, and the one that, that you know people um, that know that you know they, they call him a rapist, a rapist. He actually was convicted on the the lowest rape count, and that's the one he's doing three years on. The, count that he's doing 20 years on is um it's a sodomy count no a criminal sex act um that did not involve um any actual sex so it's you know it, it was it was tough we did the best that we could with what we had i still will go back to our beginning of our conversation jury selection because there are a lot of jurors out there and and, and potential jurors out there and people who i meet on the street that number one say it just doesn't ring true to them that um, someone would be so upset about what took place and then continue the relationship. And you know what? We're not talking about women who are really, were really in the industry like Gwyneth Paltrow or anyone, and they were going to lose their, their, their position. You know, we're talking about one woman was a hairdresser and another woman didn't even really work in the field. So, you know, it was it was a difficult it was difficult for the prosecutor to say, well, if they denied him, he was going to wreck their lives because he wasn't really involved in their lives. And I'm going to say it again. I mean, he was found not guilty of four of the six counts. So the jury must have believed some of our strategy. It was just really the one woman um, who testified that he assaulted her in, in her home that they did not. Um, that was the one, that was the big conviction that the judge sentenced him to 20 years on. And a lot of people think that that 20 year sentence is quite excessive based on other sentences that that judge have given to other men who had no criminal records charged with the exact same crime. 
Right, and of course, this is why we have defense counsel, even for uh, the most des despised criminal defendants, and in fact, especially for those that are uh, under uh, public uh, scrutiny, uh, so that uh, the charges that are brought against them are fairly heard. And, and of course, uh, the defense here did, as you said, everything they could to uh, uh, defend their client, which is uh, obviously appropriate in our system of justice. The counts that, uh, amongst the counts that he was, he was in fact acquitted of were, uh, included being uh, a sexual predator. Uh, and even though he was acquitted on those charges, they did serve a purpose, a purpose in the trial, uh, because by bringing the, the, the charge of being a sexual predator, uh, they had to show that this was part of a, a continuous practice. And to do that, they were able to, or had to, bring in testimony from uh, several other women, and, and obviously there were many, uh, that said he was engaging in this kind of conduct with him. And, and certainly that must have had a tremendous impact on the other counts uh, that you were defending as well. I don't see how you could separate those in the same trial. Well, to say there wasn't a spillover effect would be naive. He was acquitted of all of those counts. Uh, Rose McGowan was the big um, complaining victim there, and they, they acquitted him on, on her counts. Um, and that was really, you know, in my opinion, that was really piling on because, and it was, it was a political play to do this, you know, predatory sex act because at Mr. Weinstein's age, what could have happened is exactly what did happen, right? So even if you eliminate those things, he still is basically serving life in prison. The DA's office just wanted those words and they, and they knew they were in front of a judge that would have done it. Had he got convicted of that, he would have given him life in prison. There's not a doubt in my mind. He wanted to grab the headlines. The prosecutors wanted to grab the headlines and it just sounds, you know, sexy life in prison, as opposed to giving a 70 year old man, you know, 23 years, which, you know, basically he'll be out maybe, maybe for his 90th birthday. Um, so, yes, it, the, that was another battle we had to fight. And, you know, the time, effort, energy, the motion practice, the preparation to deal with that whole segment of the case obviously pulled us away from everything else that, that needed to be done with the two primary complaining witnesses. And just so you know, David, the, the judge allowed so much corroboration into the case um, I shouldn't say corroboration, Molino um, rule evidence, which the judge, Judge Camels will explain what that is, but an extraordinary amount of Molino uh, evidence was presented to this jury compared to any other trial, not only that I've tried, but everyone around me. I mean, obviously, uh, Judge Camels and I know a few, a few lawyers in the New York City legal community, and when they heard how many witnesses were going to be uh, testifying on top of the actual complaining witnesses, you know, everybody was just blown away. Judge Cambridge, could you just you know, tell them what Molyneux evidence is? The Molyneux issue has to do with, is part of the prosecution's direct case. This is not on cross-examination. This is part of the people's direct case that prior bad acts can come in to, to which the prosecutor claims is relevant to an issue in the case. And this was a critical uh, 
part of the people's case and one of the issues that uh, we will undoubtedly address on appeal. But that makes the the the, pro- the defense attorney's job even more difficult because in addition to trying to attack the credibility of the complaining witnesses, you have to try to attack the veracity of prior bad acts, which really have nothing to do with the, uh, in a sense, with the actual crimes for which the defendant is being tried. So this is an issue that, as you know, that came up in the Bill Cosby case, uh, which is now on direct appeal. And this is an issue that came up uh, in our case and we'll be addressing it on appeal. Well, obviously, you know, oftentimes, and you, you, the two of you know better than I do, that in, in a in a typical case, uh, it will come down to an issue of credibility of the witness, and you can, uh, that's part of a defense. When, when you have a case like this, and you talk about Bill Cosby as well, when you have, you know, literally dozens of people coming forward and say, uh, this person engaged in similar conduct, it's awfully hard to say that you know, they're all not, they're all lying. Well, you're raising an issue that sounds like propensity. And that's exactly what is not supposed to be allowed at a trial. You cannot, the prosecutor is not permitted to introduce evidence that shows a propensity of the defendant to act in a certain way. The only way Molyneux evidence can come in is if it is relevant to a particular issue. And that's one of the arguments we made. It was not relevant to any issues that the prosecutor was trying to establish. So uh, again, you're right. If a juror hears that in the past somebody has committed similar acts, you're absolutely right. They're going to think that this defendant committed the current act, but that's not the way the system's supposed to work. The system's not supposed to allow a defendant to be convicted based upon his, quote, propensity to commit certain types of acts. Now, you had an opportunity to have uh, Harvey Weinstein uh testify in this case. Um, He said publicly that he wanted to testify. Um, Knowing, I'm assuming everything that you told him about what was, what he was going to be asked about. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the decision to not have him testify? Well, without getting into our, obviously the discussions we had with him, I mean, of course, he did want to testify, but we discussed with him the nature of the Sandoval ruling that was made, which Arthur mentioned before. And when you think about it, if you a person wants to tell his or her story and get on the stand, but knows in advance that the district attorney is going to be allowed to cross-examine him about 25 prior bad acts, uh, you have to think twice about whether you want to get on the stand, and that's essentially what Mr. Weinstein had to do. He had to decide whether he could get on the stand and be believed by the jury if they heard about 25 uh, incidents, not necessarily crimes, but incidents, arguments, uh, um, uh, minor uh, altercations, uh, verbal disputes, things like that. And he had to make a decision. His ultimate decision was that he chose not to testify. I mean, David, they, this was, these are seasoned prosecutors. I don't think I'm exaggerating. They probably would have had him on the stand for the first full day of his cross-examination, just testifying about those 25 things. So after, you know, we would put him on the stand and he would tell his version of the events and that, you know, everything was consensual and these were the nature of the relationship with them and the dinner parties they went to together and how he, they came to his house and he went to their house and he met them all. And he would have painted this picture of 
of two young women who he had, you know, great long-term relationships with on many levels, not just sexual, you know, uh, friendship-wise, intellectual-wise, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, then the prosecutor stood up, and for a day, she, she literally would have gone through 25 different things that would just, you know, not portray him as uh, someone who was credible, even if you can't have a trial within a trial. So why did you punch your brother in the nose? Well, you know, how far is the judge going to get into the fact that these are two brothers and blah, 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 and how they grew up? And so, you know, it was just, it's very hard. As I said, David, I've only heard, I mean, uh, Sandoval rulings, okay, a prosecutor into two or three issues in the past, and usually it's a prior arrest or a prior, uh, or a prior um, conviction. Here, it was just every little parking infraction that he had was going to be brought out. So it was a difficult decision. Um, I know it was for him because when you believe that you didn't do anything wrong, you want to tell everybody that. And um, I mean, I'll just do a little sidestep. Our current client is Alan Dershowitz. I mean, we can't stop him from telling the world that he didn't do anything wrong with uh, anybody in, in Jeffrey Epstein's world. As much as we say, Alan, we would appreciate you didn't do that. He's like, look, I didn't do this. And to my last dying breath, I mean, he said this on the courthouse steps, I will say it till the day I die. And then when I die, my wife will say it. And when I, my wife says it, my daughter will say it. And then my grandchildren will say it. I never did anything wrong, blah, blah, blah. So there was a degree that Mr. Weinstein wanted to have that opportunity to tell the world he didn't do anything wrong. Um, and, uh, but you know, ultimately the judge, you know, we did have about a half an hour to sit in the back and obviously we spoke about it endlessly in our office. And that was the decision that Mr. Weinstein ultimately made, whether it was the right one or wrong one, you know, we'll never know. I mean, but right. yeah, obviously when you get convicted, you're thinking, well, maybe he could have talked his way out of it, but you know, he could have talked his way into it or, you know, you'll never know. Right. Now, uh, you mentioned the Sandoval, Sandoval ruling that uh, was going to permit all these uh, numerous prior bad acts. Is that part of the basis for your appeal? Well, Sandoval rulings generally uh, are a balancing act. The judge has to balance the, the right of the people to be able to cross-examine as opposed to giving the defendant a fair opportunity to testify. And it will be part of our appeal in, in, in terms of the, the judge, you know, whether the judge stepped over boundaries here and, and uh, rendered a decision which was not fair to the defendant. So I won't go into anything more, but it will be part of our appeal, yes. So the, uh, just as logistically, the appeal has not been uh, filed yet? No, the, the appeal has not been filed uh, yet, and uh, we're, we're working on it. And uh, as you know, Mr. Uh, Weinstein is, uh, well, you may not know, he's up in uh, Buffalo right now. As a matter of fact, he has a court date uh, this Friday uh, with regard to the Los Angeles matter. The Los Angeles has now uh, begun extradition proceedings to bring him out there. And he has an attorney who will be representing him in, in Buffalo uh, on Friday to uh, address the extradition uh, proceedings. Well, uh, Arthur Idella and Judge uh, Barry Kamins, I want to thank you very much for being with us here on Miranda Warnings and sharing uh, some details about uh, your this, the strategy of uh, the case and this uh, very famous case. Um, you know, obviously, the issues that we're talking about here are very serious uh, and significant. 
Um, but we do have something of a lighthearted feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie. And I'm going to let each of you uh, share with us something that's helping you get through this quarantine for our listeners. Uh, with me, it's definitely music. That's, that's, a, that's a new break. That's, what are you listening yeah, watching, to, Arthur? Well, you know, and I'm a diehard Rolling Stones fan. And, and it, you know, they wrote this crazy song called Ghost Town a year ago. And then they tweaked it a little bit because basically that's what New York City turned into during the pandemic. So, and I was supposed to go see them, David, at in Cleveland. And Geraldo Rivera was going to take be backstage and introduce me to the band because he knows them so well and maybe go have a drink with them in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Of course, that all went sideways. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to the to my childhood roots and, and getting letting the stones get me through this uh, interesting time. Well, I, I, I lead a more sheltered life, David. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I, li- I listen to jazz and there's a great uh, station in New York, WBGO. I listen to jazz a lot while I'm working on Sandoval motions. Uh, so, so that's the sheltered life that I live in. Well, whatever you need to do to get the juices flowing, Judge. Yes, thank you, David. If you have any suggestions, I'm, I'd welcome them. I, well, I know you live a sheltered life. I know the, the Stones wrote, give me shelter, so uh, that might be might be an entree <laughs> for you. Okay, thank you. So thank you both, uh, Arthur Idella and Judge Kamins, for being with us on Miranda Warnings. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.